0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 69, and the quote of the day is from Brian Tracy, who said, you can make excuses, or you can make progress. Your choice. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals, information, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource podcast. And I want to let everybody know that I teach a free webinar on a regular basis called Marketing for the Modern Musician. And this will help you learn what you need to market yourself as a musician in the modern world and brand yourself as a professional, yielding more exposure, more followers, and more gigs. So if you're interested in learning more about that, go to drummersresource.com forward slash register. That is drummersresource.com forward slash register for marketing for the modern musician free webinar. The guest I have today is the amazing Dom Famularo, who has been an influence of mine for many, many years. He is a master educator and one of the most well-respected drummers in the drumming community. He's also a motivational speaker. He's an author and just an amazing human being and, and has so much knowledge and history about the drum set and he's going to share all of that with us today and i don't want to take up any more time let's get right into this interview with dom dom how are you today thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it
1: great nick thanks for, thanks for having me man. this is exciting this is good for you for doing all this here to help get the word out to drummers worldwide
0: well you know it's funny that you say that um a couple of weeks ago i put out a podcast and and about Maybe an hour later, somebody emailed me from Sweden and said, hey, I just listened to the latest podcast. It was great. It just amazes me that, that you can put something out and instantaneously it can just go around the world to to anybody who wants to listen to it.
1: Boy, that really is the world we live in now, Nick, and it's pretty amazing as I see it too. I mean, I, I have a, a fan page I started just a short while ago on Facebook and um, you know, just of my little traveling around the world and what I do. I've traveled to over 60 countries, and so I just kind of put this fan page together. And I've got over 55,000 people that are on there now from over 46 countries.
0: That's insane.
1: So just to go to the stats and try and see where people are from and who's, I mean, I've got drummers, you know, 300-some-odd drummers from Iran that Mm. are following me on Facebook. So it's kind of interesting to see how the world has changed dramatically, for sure, in my lifetime, when I first started playing drums, to where we are now. The reach and the voice that you can have worldwide is absolutely amazing.
0: It is amazing, and now and you do a lot of Skype lessons and and master classes through Skype as well, don't you?
1: I do. This is this is really kind of crazy. I live on the North Shore of Long Island, and uh, you know, uh, offset from the back of my my house, I've got a pretty big piece of property here. I built a twenty-four by twenty-two foot. You know, out of cement building. It's basically a bunker mm-hmm. that I built. You know, away from my house, so I have the the privacy of my studio. Right. And it's all you know wired and 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 set up for the internet and everything. And I go in there and I have students that travel to me from over 30 countries that come to me for lessons. But now uh, with the uh, the advent of Skype, which I've been using now for probably the past eight plus years. Wow. I think I was the first person to use Skype. Uh, in lessons. So the one-on-one lessons has been building and it allows students now to have access to me in my studio. I've got a big, you know, 27 inch iMac computer that I can see everybody on and Mm -hmm. multi-camera angles and it's very easy to make it happen. And the quality is good. I've upgraded the bandwidth that I have from my cable here. So if somebody has average or even above average bandwidth, it is crystal clear. Hmm. So now I've been doing Skype lessons as master classes, where from my studio, Mm teachers now are bringing in their students to an area. And I just did one actually yesterday in, in the UK to Andy Thurston, who's got a school outside of uh, of uh, Manchester in England.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: 25 students, all with practice pads. We lock on the time for when it is. I come on. I see all of the students. They see me on a huge flat screen TV. I take them through ideas of a specific topic for that lesson. They're all playing together. And, and in that hour lesson, I have them playing a good 45 minutes or more of time of them playing while I'm speaking. So when the lesson finishes, their hands are warmed up. They feel the change. They've learned some new techniques. Right. We've had some fun. I've been able to see them. And Andy walks around going from student to student, helping out. The students then pay the teacher. Mm-hmm. And then Andy makes some money. He PayPal's me, my money. It's a win-win all the way around. Right. Once a month, his students are fired up for me to go in there and motivate them and, and, and fire them up so it makes his teaching even more exciting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He makes more money in that hour of time than he normally would. And I'm able to be in my home doing a lesson where I'm making money from my home as opposed to having to travel with the intense pace that I travel normally. Right, I'm able, right. To, I'm able to pull back a little bit. <laughs> right.
0: And but not you only know, that, you, ha- you know the, the travel expenses that are associated with it as well, are, you don't have the, those either.
1: Absolutely. And I really believe, uh, um, hopefully in my lifetime, that I'll be able to perform actual drum clinics and festivals from my studio as technology gets to that that next level. And I'll be on a huge screen someplace in Australia and I'll be able to play an hour and a half clinic presentation Mm -hmm. and feed questions and perform and play. And the imagery of what they'll see on the screen will be crystal clear and it'll be as if I am there. That will save the flight cost to Australia, that'll save the hotels you need, the time change, Mm -hmm. and all the crazy expense that our industry invests in for the future of drumming. If we can pull back on some of that crazy investment where we're making airlines and hotels wealthy and put that focus into the drumming and music industry, I think that could raise the standard of quality of what we're doing worldwide.
0: I totally agree. Totally so agree. I,
1: we're on that. We're on that cusp, and what I'm doing now is I've got what I call DF Live, Don Famularo Live, mm-hmm. where I'm able to do a live session from my studio to an unlimited amount of computers. Mm-hmm. I send out an email and a, and a mailing message of what time it'll be. People pay $10 for the hour lesson on a specific topic. They sign in. They watch me live. They can either email or instant message or even call in questions. Oh, that's great. That's handed to me live. We do it. We did a test market of it. I had 237 people sign on. (laughs) It worked flawless. Everyone saw it. We did it. One of the students that signed on, which was great, was the great David Garibaldi. Really? And he said, "Um," and he he paid his $10 and watched the lesson. I was doing some hand techniques up, and he loved the stuff, and we did it, and he had an absolute blast. And just to have that level of quality of, of people attuned to what's happening. Again, there's someone like David who's on the cutting edge of being aware of how technology is helping out.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Now, how do you feel about the intimacy of teaching private versus teaching on Skype? Do you feel that one is better than the other or they're just different?
1: Well, think of it this way, Nick, you know, and and, they're all different, Mm -hmm. but they are all equally as, as, um, as rewarding, Mm -hmm. Now, here I am, you and I are on Skype right now, but yet you're recording this audio, but yet I see you and I'm looking at you. And when I look at the screen, I'm looking at you. When you're with somebody in a lesson, while they're looking at the hands or looking down at their pad or they're looking in the mirror, I can look away and look at the clock or whatever it is. So when you have a one-on-one lesson in person, there's a little bit more freedom of less eye contact. When I'm with you right now, I am with you 100% of the time looking at you. And that's what the the internet does. It pulls in our attention Mm -hmm. to a much higher level, which actually adds and lifts the quality a little bit more.
0: It's funny that you say that because just a second ago, somebody walked behind you and then walked back up the steps. So now if that was in person – I would probably look away and watch the person walk over and then, you know, but I did, I just stayed, I stayed focused on you. So it's, it's funny that it was the perfect example of why you were just talking about
1: it. And what was good, I'm in my office right now, which is, which is in the the, the lower part of my house, which has a, 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 some French doors that walks out. It's, it's the level of my, 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 my house. It's not a basement. Mm -hmm. It's the lower part of my house. And my wife came down, she's actually putting together some orders for me for some books that came in. So she came down to my office, she grabbed some product. And she'll go to the post office to mail that stuff out. So, e- exactly right. I kept on going; it didn't even affect me. Mm-hmm. And that's what the internet does, and what what Skype or FaceTime or whatever video, you know, uh, uh, you know, program we choose to use.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how do you feel that the that the industry is responding to all this technology lately? Do you think that some people are still trying to to fight it and, and still trying to sort of push it away?
1: Absolutely. Change, you know, change in any industry is hard to accept. And right. man, I, I am I am 61 years young, mm-hmm. Nick. And I say that because I am on top of all this technology and learning every day and keeping on the 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 the, 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 the edge of what's happening because it excites me that it allows me that at some point when this podcast is being aired, someone like you said in Sweden will be hearing my voice and think of it this way, when I'm long gone and I'm no longer on this earth, this podcast will still live and the information that we are speaking and sharing Mm -hmm. still can help somebody in maybe 20, 30, 40, or 50 years in the music industry.
0: I think about that a lot, that I'm going to have this whole archive of interviews that i've done and you know 20 years from now i can still go back and listen to this interview which is it's an amazing thing
1: this is a legacy that you are putting together with these podcasts and this is a legacy that allows me to have my you know little humble career being passed on that people can learn from it and and absorb and and grow from it Mm -hmm. so the music industry there's there are two models and i use the model of the 20th century model and there's a 21st century model.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. The 20th century model of a teacher has maybe three or four books that they teach out of. They've been teaching that way for many, many years, and they use that way, and they teach the way they were taught. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that the, the world is changing. That's the way they learn, that's the way they teach. That's really what I call the 20th century model. Now, that still works for certain people, that still works for certain students, but it's changing because as the students become younger and newer, that model no longer is applicable because people want to learn in a newer model. The 21st century model really is about how I teach now. I don't teach the way I taught, not even, you know, 15 years ago. No, not at all. Uh, A student comes to me. I evaluate that student for what they're looking to achieve. I evaluate the student of what they feel their weak points are. I evaluate the student on how much time they have for practice. Mm -hmm. I want to know their background as far as who they study with, who their teachers were, what books they've been through, how they study, how they learn. I have to get into that person, you know, almost like a psychologist. Sure. So if I know how they learn, they might learn better if I demonstrate it for them. They might learn if they play it. They might learn if we play it together. Mm -hmm. They might learn better if they watch it on 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 a YouTube clip that I'm playing for them. Right. So once I find out how they learn, I can then specify and prescribe the curriculum or the books that that student would use. So I use books and DVDs and information the way a doctor would use drugs. Sure. You come to me and you have an ailment. (laughs) Right. I'm going to find out exactly what it is and I might give you a certain drug specifically for that area of your body that it will target to achieve what you're looking to reduce the pain in. Whereas, you know, if, you know, the old 20th century model was there was, you know, stick control and Jim Chapin's book and syncopation, Mm -hmm. three still excellent books. Sure. But they're not the only books. They are three of the books to start the springboard to other great books. Mm -hmm. So what happens now is, is, you know, if someone uses that old model and only uses those books, that's kind of how it was when I was younger and I went to the doctor and all they ever prescribed to you was penicillin. Penicillin. <laughs> yeah. I, I went in with a. I, I had a. My knee was hurting me. The guy, the doctor, gave me penicillin. I had a toothache. He gave me penicillin. I had a backache. I had a scar. A cut. The uh, what? Penicillin. Now, now, I, penicillin doesn't do anything for me anymore. Right. I'm immune to it. Right. 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 <laughs> so that's kind of what happened. So now I can look back at what that student wants, and I can better hone in. On exactly what is best for that student, so the quality of lesson that I have found has actually gotten better in how I'm teaching, and it's even more exciting because now everybody gets a plan mapped out specifically for them,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: that really, to me, is where is where to begin.
0: Absolutely, that's that's a great approach because I think, like you said, a lot of people are stuck in the old model where they say, "Here, these are the book you have to go through: stick control, you have to go through the Jim Chapin book, you have to go through four way independent or four way coordination, and." You can only you're you're gonna play the snare drum and that's it and you know let's work through that stuff for the next
1: year. I mean even even reading stuff. I mean I, when I learned I, I worked out of some great great masters here in Long Island. Al Miller was an incredible reader. He could read rudimental books and classical books and big band charts, like you put it in front of him and he played it like he owned it and ha- and knew it all of his life. Right. And it's an amazing skill.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But at that time in his life. There was more big band chart reading. There were shows that singers came in and gave you charts. There were more um, you know, gigs that happened where reading was more required. Mm-hmm. So when I learned from him, that was a skill we had to learn. And I put in hundreds of hours of going through many different books to develop my reading skill.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, now that isn't the case nowadays. If a kid's playing in a band and the band is, is writing their own tunes, he only has to have enough reading information so he can chart out his own little chart,
2: right? Right.
1: As opposed to having to go in and read a chart, Mm -hmm. or maybe if a guitar player comes in with a two measure rhythm, he might have to figure that rhythm out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So his reading skill does not have to be at the level of sight reading Buddy Rich's chart, West side story. Sure. You know, which I did years ago. So it wasn't at that. It's a different level. So to adapt and be flexible is really where the 21st century model is at.
0: So do you and, think and, it's less important to know how to read now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and that's difficult for me to even say because sure. in, yeah. in my time, man, that's a skill. Now, I happen to know that if somebody's serious about playing drums, they're going to realize the importance of reading music mm-hmm. because if they do have the importance of reading music, it's going to help them in many other ways. I, I'm in my car and I'm and I'm driving and I hear the new Maroon 5 5 album out, Right. And I hear something the drummer is doing, and I kind of go, man, that's cool. I'm able to literally, of course, when I'm in the passenger seat when my wife is driving, right. <laughs> I'm able to transcribe that immediately and remember that groove. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and that is, that is a, a very uh, a very good skill to have and a very useful skill to have.
1: So that's something which I know as a professional that's going to help me out. But if someone's just a hobbyist, they don't have to have that skill. They can buy the recording and listen to it five or ten times and kind of learn it through assimilation that way. So, so there are different ways to reach different people for different needs. I think teachers nowadays really have to be skillful at understanding what education is today,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: not just what teaching is. What is education? You know, when someone comes to me, I want to use the resources of my knowledge to assist them to achieve what they want,
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: what what they want to achieve. That's going to make them happy that's very important
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and you mentioned the importance of education and you are I consider you a master teacher and I think that a lot of people out there play drums and then they say well I'll teach on the side because I need to make some extra money yeah. so they use that as a as a side gig but you I feel have always been concentrating on teaching right I mean that's you're do, you, do you, I I I feel like you you love teaching, and a lot of other people just teach so that they can make money.
1: You know, it's funny Nick, how my life turned out. I mean, I, when I was 12 years old, I became a professional working with bands around the Long Island area,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I worked. And I how worked old were not, you when
0: you when you started playing?
1: I was about 11, 11 years old. I started, mm-hmm. and after about a year, I had a, a you know the 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 Beatles had hit and kind of inspired everyone to want to play music, mm-hmm. and here I am playing in, in a in a in a in a, in a Couple of bands. My two older brothers and younger sister played musical instruments, so we had a band together. I had outside bands that I met, and at that time, when the Beatles hit in 1964, everybody was putting bands together. So I was in like three or four bands by the age of 12. Wow! Playing and 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 playing Beatle tunes or or playing you know uh, other different bands that were out on on the AM radio at the time mm-hmm. and playing their tunes. It was great, great fun. And then there were many more opportunities for Sweet 16 parties and you know, uh, the, the the VFW hall would have a party and hire a band. So every week there, was, there were parties going on. So I began to work and played in tons of bands from the ages of 12 until actively till probably about 35, 40 at a pretty steady basis. Mm-hmm. Then I began to pull back and at the age of 17 is when I started my teaching practice because having played here in Long Island, many drummers were asking me when they heard me play, Dom, we like what you're doing. Can you show me what you're doing? Right. That's kind of how my teaching business started. Now, I happen to love teaching. My dad had, you know, in, in his field, got involved with teaching. My mom was always a great teacher at what she did. So it was kind of in my family blood. Sure. So with that, I always loved being able to explain and see the reward of someone moved by my effort to help them learn and grow. Right. There's a power in that that's extremely exciting for me. So with that, at 17 years old, I start teaching. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even 18 years old, and I've got 50 students a week. Wow! And I'm and I'm and I'm making money from teaching, but I was also playing in six different bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, ju- so my life was always intense, you know, and scheduling that. So I kept on going with that, and the teaching just kind of stayed. I've never advertised for teaching, but my teaching practice has always been intense. So as I can continue doing it, I then begin to fine tune my teaching practice room Mm -hmm. Where I wanted to improve it because I wanted two drum sets at a time when everybody was only using one drum set I wanted a practice pad but not just put the practice pad on this drum set snare drum I wanted to have a separate station for that practice pad Right, then I wanted to do snare drum reading exercises, but I didn't want to read a lot of those Wilcoxon or Pratt rudimental books playing on an actual pad so I went and I set up a snare drum that I could stand up at so I could play it standing up and play it on the snare drum. So my teaching room evolved into these three different stations. Mm -hmm. The practice technique station of having a practice pad with a double pedal on an an Evans uh, real fill practice pad, uh, you know, bass drum Mm
3: -hmm.
1: pad, and that's station number one. Station number two were having snare drums to read these books on. So I've got one snare drum for classical studies, classical reading, I have a marching standard a mapex you know field marching drum with a Kevlar head on it mm-hmm. and I've got an old you know rope drum right for the old colonial type drum mm-hmm. just to with an old calfskin head from the Cooperman company which just gives you the feel of what they played hundreds of years ago and how you had to really work to make those sticks you know move on that do you, have, do you have the, head
0: do you have the strap? To have them wear it on the, like absolutely the man, <laughs> they
1: put the strap on and we're marching around the studio and they're seeing how difficult it was to make that happen yeah. back in the 1700s and which really was, was the amazing.
0: which was the advent of traditional grip or that's where traditional grip came from
1: absolutely because the drum was on the side and that angle the traditional grip they were trying to play match grip but with their left arm playing it so high it was uncomfortable so instead of having their hand over the stick as match grip would be they put their hand under the stick so their elbow could relax. Right, Right. And what happened was, and then that's why I changed many years ago to match grip playing, because to carry that tradition of traditional grip playing to the modern drum set, the modern drum set is a different instrument. Mm -hmm. So to use the old techniques from marching onto this newer 20th century and now 21st century instrument seemed to be working against the movement of the body.
0: Sure, don't tell Buddy Rich that though. Well, I he, think because he, he he had a he was pretty adamant about that for a but little while. Buddy
1: huh? played a lot of match grip playing. There's tons of video on YouTube of Buddy playing match grip. Buddy was an excellent match grip drummer. Yeah. Yes, he understood the tr- and he wanted to keep the tradition right of what that was about. But he played a lot of match grip, and I think if Buddy heard the music of today, and understood the challenges that we have and having to play more physically, Mm -hmm. I think he would agree that this would be the way to go. And listen, Louis Belston, a dear friend of mine, he told me, Dom, Match Grip is where it's at now. Yeah. Morello told me, Dom, Match Grip is where it's at. Jim Chapin, Match Grip is where it's at. Ed Vigpen, Match Grip is where it's at. Mm -hmm. They lived long enough to see the change of the industry to know that drumming was changing. And just like they changed as drumming changed, we must. Sure. And that's why...
0: Who was I talking to? I think it was Jojo Mayer that he was saying that he was switching, that he was playing a lot of traditional grip and he's been switching and playing a lot more match grip for the same jo- reason. Jojo
1: jo is a brilliant player. I was just with him just a few weeks ago in Vermont performing at the Kosa Music Camp mm-hmm. and we had and we always have these wonderful discussions. I met Jojo when he was, I think, 15, 16 years old, a young drummer from Zurich, Switzerland.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, he impressed me massively then right and jojo is a phenomenal player and really understands technique very very well we've had many discussions about technique his his uh dvd that's out secret you know secret Secret weapons Weapons. of of a modern drummer uh he he plays tribute to me and acknowledges me there and mentions my book in there so i was honored to be a part of that idea in the discussion of when he was putting that together
3: sure
1: and jojo understands movement Mm -hmm. and when it comes down to movement the object is to make the path of least resistance in movement. Mm -hmm. And I have felt that the change over to magic of playing has been a very, very important part of that change of how I'm playing now to give me even more freedom.
3: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: And and I made the change also to start playing more open-handed with my left hand on my left hand ride cymbal.
3: Mm -hmm. I've
1: lowered my hi-hat in the likes of how Billy Cobham did this. Mm -hmm. He was the first one to do it back in 1959. So he had the vision way ahead of everybody else. Right, right. I think then, he had a lot of visions way ahead of everybody. else. <laughs> Billy is a brilliant legend. That, that and and it, it, when he's in the New York area or, or back in the states, let me know. I'll connect you with Billy. It would be good to have a podcast with Billy because he really that would, is an absolutely great. brilliant player and a, and a just a wonderful dear friend for many many years. I've known Billy for over forty years. Yeah,
0: he is he is a, definitely a talent. And and I met him once and just a super humble and. Very nice guy. So I would love to have him on the show.
1: Yeah. And Billy, who's a natural right-handed drummer, Mm -hmm. natural right-handed drummer, just said, I'm going to start playing lefty so I can raise my left side to a higher level, moved his ride cymbal to his left, and lowered his hi-hat and cut the rod out of the way. Oh, did he? And then played lefty on his hi-hat and lefty on his ride cymbal. And that freed his right hand to move around. And we we turned that open-handed playing as opposed to cross-handed playing.
0: Right. And then what happened? I guess he just never went back. He never went back yeah, because he still I mean, he still plays with that left hand. Absolutely.
1: The yeah. freedom that he has. And then that inspired guys like Simon Phillips. Mm-hmm. Carter plays like that. Well, Simon is also another natural righty. So Simon made the change and committed to it. Carter. Brilliant is a natural lefty.
0: Oh, yeah. And he had and he was seeing a video set of how a drum set was set up or saw a picture so he set it up the same way but didn't realize
1: that it was flip-flopped he set it up righty but from what i understand and i'll have to ask carter the next time i see him i think carter is a natural lefty with his hand but a natural righty with his foot mm. so there are some people who are who throw lefty and kick righty
3: sure sure so that's
1: when carter set up a, a drum set it immediately felt comfortable because he also influenced by Billy Cobham, mm-hmm. started playing with his left ride, left hi hat, and right foot, and he just locked into it and has become the the brilliant player that he is today. Right,
0: right. <laughs> that's so, amazing that you say that. Though, yeah, I didn't even I didn't think about the the left-handed, right-footed kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. You know? So 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 that's why in my lessons, I've got to ask drummers, you know, where they're at and what they do, and and many times I'll have a drummer that says, "I'm lefty, but I play a righty kit." Mm-hmm. I'll say, "Well, gee, have you thought about?" maybe having a right symbol to your left. And they'll say, gee, not really. And we'll try it on my kids in my studio. And when they sit down, they immediately start playing patterns that they would have never thought of before. Right. Restricting themselves by (laughs) crushing their hands. So it's amazing what you discover with each individual student.
0: Sure. Well, my brother, he's a golfer or not, you know, not a professional golfer or anything, but he golfs and he always played right-handed. He's left-handed, but he always played hockey and everything else right-handed. So he figured he would golf right-handed. Then he was horrible at golf. Then he got his set of left handed clubs. He's like, man, this is easy.
1: <laughs> how, how amazing <laughs> This is and, absolutely
0: and amazing. That-, that
1: really is the game. You got to understand where your strengths are. Sure. In, in whatever you're trying to do, whether mm-hmm. something is a profession or whether something's a hobby. And that's a great example of, of, of uh, that's why they make left handed golf clubs. shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: this may be a, a pretty broad question, but how do you, how do you, um, how do you suggest that people really evaluate their own playing to figure out where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are? And it's kind of like, if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. Um, And I, because I know a lot of people say, well, I don't, I don't know what to work on next. I don't know. I don't know what I'm really good at and what I'm really bad at because, you know, I don't know if I'm bad at playing jazz because I've never, you know, I don't know what jazz is or whatever the, you know, whatever the situation may be.
1: Yeah, I, I, great question, Nick. And, and it's and, and I get that question a lot from people when 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 uh, when they email me or you know I get several hundred emails a day. So I'm down in my office here, you know, at six a.m. Well, thank so, you
0: for responding to mine. I appreciate.
1: Yeah, it. <laughs> I, I thank you for the opportunity of of having people, you know, even be able to uh, hear my voice and what we're doing. Absolutely. What's amazing is that I ask people several questions when when I first sit down with them. So mm-hmm. I'll ask you, how long have you been playing? How long have you have you ever taken lessons? Mm-hmm. From who? There's a good chance I might know them. In those lessons, what did you what did you work on? What books did you work on? Uh, and and they might say, well, I, I went through the book Stick Control, and I'll say, well, great. Um, with the book Stick Control, you know, how how many pages did you go through in Stick Control? And they'll say, well, I, I went through the book, and I'll say, well, did you go through the entire book? They'll <laughs> Page say, well, five and six. <laughs> not really. I went through the first three pages, five, six, and seven, right? <laughs> and I'll say, well, great. So so you went through the first three pages of Stick Control. Did you ever look at any other parts in Stick Control? And They would go well, not really. I say, okay. So what you did was you have a book, a brilliant book, and you only read the first chapter.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: imagine buying a book that you're excited to read, and you know, would you understand any of the books that you would, that you have read if you only read the first one or two chapters? Right. And the answer is no. So Lawrence, just Lawrence Stone, the mastermind, the beautiful segment of taking you from one place to another place in his book, and by following the book the way you go through is how you learn to achieve more stick control. Right. So when I ask them all these questions, I kind of see how they learned and what they know. Then I ask them, you know, is anybody in your family musically talented?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes you get, well, oh, absolutely not. My parents are not. Brothers and sisters, no. Or I get, well, yeah, my, my older brother plays guitar and we jam a little together. My, my dad, you know, used to play saxophone and my mom's a singer. And So I'll, I'll understand more of what's in their family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's important because that then tells me, there's probably more music played in their household than somebody who's not involved in music. Mm-hmm. So that gives me a chance to kind of see how they even listen to music. Then I ask this question. I say, name me the five, five top drummers in your life that inspire you and influence you, that whenever you listen to them, it really kind of gives you energy. Five drummers alive or dead. So if I say to you now, Nick, name me five drummers that you can name, that inspire you and influence you, that are a part of your love for drumming. Who would you name?
0: I would say Steve Gad. I would say uh, Elvin Jones. Right. James Gadson. Top five. Man, that's hard. Uh, mm, Probably Rick Marotta and Steve Jordan.
1: Okay, yeah. I wrote these down, and Steve Jordan, great. So, in that, with Gad, I understand he was. You know, his influence is is. You know, it doesn't have to be spoken of. You know, Gad. Just by saying the name Gad, a standard is set. Right. <laughs> and, it, and if someone doesn't know of that standard, then they really have to research Gad to a high level and not just watch a couple of videos on YouTube. Right. Elvin in the jazz world and the creative world, you know, opened up doors that are, people are still attempting to walk through today. Mm -hmm. James Gadsden, I had the chance, the wonderful chance of interviewing him for an organization called The Sessions. TheSessions.org, O-R-G, is a a panel of of, uh, industry people that I am able to become the moderator for of this panel of great industry people that we go to different universities and help universities and music students to understand more about the music industry and we have what's called a legend series of which James Gatson was one of them. Mm. Rick Marada, I mean talk about coming from a family that is, you know, beyond comprehension musically talented. Right. It's beautiful. And then someone like Steve Jordan, who not only is a phenomenal drummer, but an incredible producer and, you know, musicologist of history of music and and you know he just he produced John Mayer's, you know, one of John Mayer's CDs. Yeah. And brilliantly done. So you're talking about you have a good influence here of guys. If I mention someone like Bonham. Mm-hmm. Did you ever listen much to John Bonham? Yeah, yeah, a lot. Uh, Average.
0: I th- I listen to. I think I listen to more Zeppelin than Bonham. If that makes any sense.
1: Absolutely. So so I I mean
0: I've I've you know I've listened to a lot of his stuff. I've listened to Zeppelin a lot, but have I analyzed him like I did Steve Gadd? No.
1: Okay. How about someone like Buddy Rich?
0: Uh. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, obviously, listen to listen to a lot of Buddy Rich, but same same deal, never
1: analyze. Okay, so, so what I would do is when I find someone like this here, when someone says to me, Steve Gadd, then I say, if you want to understand Gadd better,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you have to really study Tony Williams and, and Buddy Rich more. So we start to go back into the workings of how we can expand someone's excitement about the drummers that they love to hear. Sure. You know, If you're talking about Elvin... Now you're talking about going back to Papa Joe Jones and Max Roach and a lot of the earlier drummers that Elvin... Today's with. Papa
0: Joe Jones' birthday, actually.
1: Absolutely. Yep. I just saw it on Facebook, yeah. Yep. So with that, now you start going back into time and you're finding out. So when I find out, and I do this with these different students, then we have to find out what is it that they're looking to achieve.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: If they want to play more like GAD, then we have to go back and study more of GAD, and we have to go study who GAD studied. Sure. And in that, you'll then find out where your strengths and your weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to play more like Gad, they really have to study more jazz. Gad came out of that world. Right. You know, so, so you know, it really is a very important part of then if, if they say, well, gee, I'm not really good at jazz, then I'll say, well, listen, why don't we start to work on some jazz so we can open you up a little bit more so you can open up that level to understand more of what Steve does. Right, right. And, and that's how we begin to find out someone's weaknesses or what someone may want to work on. Sure.
0: Now, I would I'd like to unpack that just a little bit, and I for the listeners out there, I always like to make it as simple as possible so that there's not any unanswered questions. So, if you said, okay, you're going to go, I need you to go in and study Tony Williams or or study Buddy Rich, right. how would you suggest people do that? Because it's more than just going and buying a couple of CDs and listening to it.
1: Oh, absolutely! And there's a few ways of doing it. I, I tell people if you want to study Gad, for example, and 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 sometimes someone will put them down as an influence in the top five, mm-hmm. and I'll say, "Great! What have you listened to of Gad?" And they'll say, "Well, you know, I heard, um, you know, '50 Ways to Leave Your Lover,' and, and I've seen like you know, you know, over 20 video clips on YouTube." Right. And I'll say, "That's it." <laughs> Right. Gad's in your top five, and that's what you give me. Right, right. That's what you tell me. My gosh, when I see Steve again, I'm definitely not going to tell him the story because it's going to insult him. <laughs> I said, my gosh, uh, you know, it's, if you really want to, if 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 someone's on that top five, you got to at least own ten different recordings of that artist.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Ten different recordings of that artist, because if you hear Gad playing with Chick Corea, or you hear Gad with Hubert Laws. Or you hear GAD with Barbara Streisand, or you hear GAD with Paul McCartney, you're hearing GAD in so many different situations sure. that it, it, you need at least 10 different recordings that are gonna give you a fair beginning evaluation of the potential. Right. right. Now, if you say, Well, you heard GAD 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, you know, and then I'll say, Have you heard Stilly Dan Asia? Right. Right. And they'll say, No. I said, Well, if you're saying Steve GAD's in your top five, and you're not aware of the song Asia, <laughs> right. I said, then we should start to discuss that you probably should have body parts removed right now, <laughs> surgically, <laughs> with like a rusty spoon. Right. I mean, come on! <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, or or late in the evening, or certain grooves that Steve opened up that were just brilliant in what he did. You know, mm. how Steve played with Al Demiola in those early days. Brilliant. And that late
0: in the evening groove, he played four drumsticks, and...
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Totally creatively changed the world of drumming as we know it mm-hmm. and and then you have to kind of understand what someone like an artist like Steve did for the drumming industry Steve Gadd was the first person to Put a bottom head on a 10 inch tom-tom and mount it on the drum set as an actual tom Really? Yeah, absolutely before before Steve Gadd the 10 inch tom was a concert concert tom. tom just no head on the bottom and No bottom head and it was tuned and it, and it was you know six eight and ten on a separate stand and you played that before you hit your 12-inch tom-tom, then your 13-inch tom-tom, then your 16-inch floor tom. So Steve went to Frank hippolito's in New York City with a 10-inch concert tom instead of to the guy's, guys, could you please put a bottom head on this? Mm-hmm. And I remember that because I, <laughs> I, I was there. And 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 the first reaction was, Steve, you don't put bottom heads on concert <laughs> toms. What are you doing? <laughs> it's a concert tom. Right. And Steve, as humble and as polite as, he is, as polite as he is, he goes, "Yeah, I know that. I just kind of, kind of want to hear what it sounds like." <laughs> and the first reaction from the guys, the close-minded guys behind the counter, "Steve, it's stupid. Don't waste my time to put a bottom hand of a tennis, tom. Right? It's, you know, it's you know, it's a concert tom. It's going to sound like crap. It's, it's right. going to sound like crap." So Steve so said, "Oh man, I, and and it might just do that, but I'll pay you. Just put, you know, I just want you to put the head on." Right. So it was kind of like almost in disgust (laughs) that the guy behind the counter did it. (laughs) Well, he puts the bottom head on. We put an ambassador in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then Steve hits that 10-inch tom. And everybody in the drum shop was stunned. Really? And Steve goes, yeah, that's kind of the sound I'm looking for. Thanks so much. (laughs) Paid the money and walked out. Then Steve went home and he mounted that in the first position where his 12 inch normally would be, and then mounted his 12 inch in the second position. Now he had 10, 12, and then he had 16. Hmm. So Steve figured, you know, I'm gonna change this around a little. I'm gonna try going 10, 12, 13, 14, because in the recording studios they were close-miking the drums, and he figured, I'm gonna get a big sound out of a smaller drum to see if that sound can be used in the recording sessions to get a, a you know, my kind of a sound. Mm-hmm. So, so the 13 and 14 inch floor tom could not be mounted with legs because there were no legs long enough. So Steve was the one that created the concept of mounting them both on a separate floor tom stand. Really? That was GAD. <laughs> GAD then mounts the 10 and and the 13-14 on a separate floor tom mount. And then he puts it, now he plays playing 10, 12, 13, 14. Then he went and he got the Evans hydraulic heads, which was a double ply thicker head with oil in it, mm-hmm. so it could help the sound pitch bend. So the sound went doo, doo. So he got each drum with those heads with smaller toms to bend, and that became gad sound. Then eventually he went to a 14 and 15-inch, Mounted Tom, then eventually 14 and 16. 10, 12, 14, 16, Right, right, right. Which is the setup, the normal setup that we use today. That is the fundamental basics of what you buy in a drum set. 10, 12, 14, 16, 22 inch bass drum. That was GAD. Hmm. So when you understand what GAD did just from a, a drum set vision, right. was amazing. Then you think about what GAD did with his concept of 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, where he played a rudimental cadence between his standard and hi-hat. So instead of playing a straight two-four kind of a groove for that, he played mixed sticky patterns out of the first page of George Lawrence Stone's stick control <laughs> and opened them up open-handedly to his left hand on his hi-hat and his right hand on a snare, then it accommodated his floor time in there and played this rudimental cadence as a groove. When he did that, that took the understanding of how we saw drumming as a regular eighth note, you know, ride pattern and Mm. two and four in the snare. And that took us into the world of mixed sticking patterns. And that opened up the entire linear drumming in the 1970s to a whole nother generation. (laughs) That's just bad. Right. (laughs) Now I can have (laughs) I can have this conversation about Elvin, about James Gatson about Rick Murata, about Steve Jordan. Can about- I just call you every
0: morning and you just tell me <laughs> a
1: story? <laughs> I mean, there's, so when you understand more about dad that you mentioned number one on your list, mm-hmm. when you step into understanding really what this guy has offered and done and what he continues to do at the ripe age of 68 years young, still playing brilliantly, Right. that's the world of where the excitement of drumming comes in, where you start to step into the world of this player, where if you have 10 different recordings of him playing, through the course of his career, and then you go to YouTube, and I tell guys, listen: if you want to watch Cat on YouTube, you got to watch 30 different clips, minimum 30 clips. Now, 30 clips, yeah, 30 clips. Right. You and watch- I
0: like to watch the. Vi- I want to watch him play. I don't want to. See- I mean, I love his solos. Don't get me wrong, but I want to see him play.
1: And and, you know? and again, it's playing. It's playing material. Then mm-hmm. you have to go see him perform, at least four or five times in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen your favorite guy who's for, who's fortunately still alive, if you haven't gone live, then you're completely missing what the element is. I love playing live, I still play live. There's a club here on Long Island called the Arden. I go in there and play there and sit in there all the time. Mm-hmm. I've got musicians I play with in different countries, recently in France, recently in Italy, in Germany. It's exciting, I try and keep the playing thing going. While I'm still doing my teaching thing, while I'm doing the clinic thing, while I'm writing my drum books, I keep it all, you know, balanced in what I do. And that's the excitement of how I'm able to move forward every day with the love and passion of still being involved in this instrument. Mm -hmm. It's the balance of everything.
0: Two points that I want to, that I would like to bring up. One is the balance of, you know, I, I, it's now it's getting increasingly harder to make a living in this industry. And a lot of people are trying to balance all of these things. So question one is how do you how do you manage to balance all these things and do them really well? Because everything that you do, you do well, you don't, you don't kind of uh, get this half baked idea and it, and it comes out and it could have been better. But it was everything that you do is always done really well. And the second thing is, keeping this passion alive and staying motivated because I know a lot of the stuff that you teach, not only are you a drum teacher, but you're also a motivational speaker and you do a lot of, of, um, speeches and, and clinics on that side of things. So how do you keep motivated on a day-to-day basis as well?
1: You know, first of all, thank you, Nick. And, and, and second is, 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 it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always humbled by, 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 you know, even guys like yourself saying things like that, because that, that just, that, that that encourages me to push harder at what I do. Mm-hmm. If, if you see that and you feel that, that's incredible. It's humbling. That, now that that pushes me a little further that I want to even do better. You know, I've got a, a publishing company uh, partners with Joe Bergamini, who's a phenomenal drummer in, in New Jersey, who, who is the number one sub in the Broadway shows. He's doing I think five or six Broadway shows now. And Joe's got his own band. He plays. He teaches. He, he's a, he's a book editor. He's written many books. And we have a publishing company together. And with the publisher company, uh, when I'm traveling around the world and I get an idea for a drum book, I then begin to notate some ideas. I run it by Joe. Uh, if I cannot get the idea out on my own, I then bring in one of my students to assist me with the idea. And then we get involved with it as a business together mm-hmm. where we share the royalties on the book and that, and then it's, it's published through my, my company with Joe. The company is wisdom media. We have about 12 books out right now and it's continuing to grow. I, I'm a very organized person. I use Google Calendar. Mm-hmm. And in that calendar, I share it with my wife and I tell my wife any of the family things that I must be at, put it in the calendar, my boys' concerts, what they're doing at college, whatever's going on, put it in the calendar. She puts in her religion class. She, you know, when she's teaching it, whatever happens, it's in Google Calendar. Right. Then I put in there the days that i'm going to I'm going to travel. So, for example, I'm leaving, The morning of the seventeenth of October to fly to Milwaukee to play a a, a festival with um, um, Thomas Lang, Omar Hakim, and Brian Fraser Moore for Cassio Music for Interstate uh, Music in uh, in Wisconsin. Mm. Great store! They they had this this uh, drum fest every year. Mm -hmm. Great guys! Great store! There'll be over a thousand people in the store. It'll be incredible. I've done I've done that. The festival's been around for twenty years. I've done it I think for you know, 15 of those years and I'll leave on that Friday morning. So I put in on the calendar, you know, fly to Milwaukee. Then on Saturday I've got Casio festival Then Sunday I have fly home. Mm -hmm. So in that calendar, that weekend is filled up with there. Then I put in the calendar all the days I'm able to teach the days Mm -hmm. that I'm here. There might be maybe 10 or 15 days in that month. I put that in my calendar. My wonderful wife, Charmaine is my assistant with my scheduling. Mm -hmm. So then she goes in there and she checks out the days that I can teach she pulls those days out and she emails them to the 1,500 students I have on my list of teaching mm-hmm. and they all choose times that they want available for them, no matter where they are around the world. She works out the time zone changes and she books those lessons from anywhere from nine in the morning until six at night. So, she, and, and they're usually, once the, the, the email list goes out, it, those days are jam-packed. I might also put in there two or three business days that I need. Like right. today, I have in there as a business day where I'm doing several Skype meetings and sessions and interviews of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> and I'll do that. I've got two more interviews later on today that I'll be doing. Instead of today, in between the interviews, I'm answering emails. I'm making phone calls to the companies I'm with, whether it's Mapex, Sabian, Vic Firth, or Evans. I'm on the phone. It's a business day. right? So in that day now, if my wife says to me, gee, she emails me there's a student that's that's gonna be in here from from Canada and he's really begging for a lesson and the only day that you have, you, you could possibly do it is on your business day, then I might say, boy, put him in for four hours and I'll shift things around and let's get him in and do it. Right. So it's flexible and it's breathable, but it's the calendar that uses my information. Well, the birth dates for my family and anniversaries are in there. That's my focus of keeping me attuned to what's happening. So every morning I'm at my desk at 6 a.m. I'm here to start to map out the plan for that day, and that's how I organize it. When I'm traveling on planes, I'm carrying my laptop, my iPad, and my iPhone, and I'm handling business at the airport or on the plane. Right. right. I might be writing a drum book. I'm working on my second motivational book. My first one, The Cycle of Self-Empowerment, is still selling very, very well in over 20 countries, which amazes me.
2: That's awesome.
1: That's great. <laughs> and my second book I'm working on now to follow up with that book is called owning now it's about owning the moment it's about being in the moment just like as we're speaking right now we are in the moment i'm not worrying about the different emails that are coming in as i'm speaking to you Mm -hmm. i'm not worrying about the text messages that are coming in or my messenger on facebook you know blinking telling me that there's messages i ignore all that i'm with you we own the moment we've got another five more minutes we can crank this thing on with and i want to give you all that time once i finish from this moment of owning this moment when i say goodbye to you I'm into my next moment. Right, right. So to me, I stay in the moment no matter what I'm doing all the time. So hence, that book is owning now, which is the follow-up. I might be on my airplane, and I might make notes from an idea that I have into my iPhone five in my notes in my notes, you know, app. Right. Under my chapter owning now, and I might speak the the, the idea right in there. And I'll get to it later on to expand it into my computer. Mm-hmm. And because it's in my phone on the notes section, it then goes to iCloud. It's everywhere. So when I finally get to my computer at the airport, Delta Sky Lounge, right. and I open up my computer, that note that I did on my phone comes up on here so I can then start working on my book, Owning Now, while I have a half an hour wait for my flight. Right. So the usage of time and time management, people speak about time management, I believe you can't manage time. Really what it is is life management. Right. I have to manage my life inside the time that God's given me and I don't know when it's going to end. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it could be it could be today. Right, so right. I got to squeeze the most I can <laughs> out of organizing myself cuz I don't know what I've been given with and that's part of what I say in the book owning now. When it comes to this game of life, understand nobody gets out alive. Yep. If you understand that that means My object now with my life is to try and live as long a life as I can to be as healthy as I can for my boys and my family, and then to try to matter in that time to make a difference. And that's how I manage myself and my life inside this calendar of what I do Mm. so I can maintain balancing all of this. And it's the balance of not only my career and what I'm doing, but it's most important is to balance my family time. To have that time with my family, to have that time with my wonderful wife, my boys, and all that I'm doing in the process. Mm-hmm. So that's really the balance that comes in. Once you understand that, and there are tons of books that I recommend, you know, books for different guys to read as far as how they can improve that, you know, libraries are filled up with books to learn how to manage what we do better and achieve what we're trying to achieve.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now what about the staying motivated side of things? How do you get up every morning and just say, man, i you know, I got to get down to my desk. because and, and, you know, It's difficult because you, you and I, we both work from home. Yeah. Right. So it's it's some days you get, you know, you got to you got to get some extra motivation in you because you get up and it's you could just as easily lay on the couch all day if you wanted to. You know,
1: you know, I haven't laid on my couch. <laughs> Me neither. Just- <laughs> believe it or not, since I was probably 14. <laughs> that's just I'm the that, same way. That's just never been in my inherent insanity of how I run my life. Me neither. I am a type A personality. I'm a Virgo. I want things done organized and, and efficiently. And and I I uh, the, the motivation for me comes from a I've got a, a beautiful family. My wonderful wife of 20 soon to be 21 years mm-hmm. supports me 100% in what I do. She's my partner in what I do. She's, you know, putting out orders and answering emails and taking care of my students and she's involved with my business. It's very exciting to work with her and do what I want to do. So I'm inspired to work with her. I've got three wonderful boys, Maxwell, Jonathan, and Dominic. They are 16, 18, and 20. They are just great kids that are into life and into what they're doing. My two oldest are in college, in Brooklyn College and in Purchase College. Maxwell, my 16-year-old, wants to go into forensic science, so we just did a tour of John Jay College in New York, and we went there. So it's inspiring to see that they're now putting together their lives and and it was just like yesterday when they were born, and it's gone by so fast that I'm inspired every day just to see, to be motivated through their lives. So once you bring children into it, that's a huge motivating process. Sure, place. sure. Then I own a house here on, the, on in Port Jefferson Village on Long Island, a wonderful little humble house that I have here with my studio, and I've got to run this house. Right. I've, I've got responsibilities as a homeowner uh, in my village or my community. I'm on many committees that I'm working on with our our mayor here in town. She contacted me and wanted me involved with certain programs that she's doing because she felt she had confidence in the way that I spoke in front of people. So to represent some of the village doing certain things, she's got me. So I'm involved in some volunteer community work. So all of this that's happening, my life is so full that there isn't the time for me to be unmotivated. There isn't the time for me to even say Boy, I, I have nothing to do today that right. never comes up right so what I do is I've got to wake up early just so I can see the the exciting challenges that I have and I see everything as a challenge not as a problem
3: mm-hmm.
1: problem for me is a sucks energy out of me it's negative right a challenge excites me to to literally rise to the challenge I that's where I want to go I agree so every different task, what you're doing with your podcast and what you're doing with the stick manufacturing and what you're doing with even the balance of the family restaurant and what you're doing with your relationships that you have in your life, this is all part of it. When you organize this into a place, whether it's an online calendar or however you organize it, it really is exciting that every day is a completely different adventure. I want to make sure that I am thankful for the life that I have, that I'm able to breathe and wake up in the morning and say, wow. God gave me another day. Let me see if I can serve this day well. I totally agree. That's really what it all comes down to.
0: That's the. That's the perfect way to get up every day,
1: I think. Right, and the fact that I can get up and come down to my office and have a business day and I'm still wearing my freaking slippers. This is huge. <laughs> it does, I don't even have any shoes on. So, it <laughs> uh, Hey, sometimes I do Skype lessons. I'm in my underwear. As long as the camera's from waist up, right, it doesn't fault. really matter. They don't know. One time the camera slipped and one of my students saw me in my boxer shorts. The freaking kid almost had a coronary on the freaking Skype thing. So now my wife says, Listen, will you wear some pants? You got to wear some pants. pants. <laughs> Put your freaking pants on. You're not on. a news anchor. Oh, <laughs> I right, thank you very much. Exactly right. <laughs> laughter, if there's a belly laugh every day, those endorphins and what goes into your mind and what gives you longevity in life, laughter will do it for you. So I laugh every day. We, I have jokes every day with people. We just tease every day. My wife, I laugh. We just laugh to squeeze the most out of it because. I don't own tomorrow. I don't even own later. Right. So, you know, if someone hears me and, and they hear my voice now, I'm alive now. I want to try and do the most I can with this life. Someday they might hear this podcast when I'm not here. Mm-hmm. And at least they'll be able to say that, boy, when he did live, this guy really pushed he the lived. As much as he can. He lived. Yep. Yeah.
0: I totally agree with that. That's the, that's the way I live my life, too. So I have one last question for you. So what's a, you mentioned there are all these books out there, and, and I know that you've read a bunch of books and you, and you wrote The Cycle of Self-Empowerment. So outside of that book, and I'll link to that book uh, in the show notes for this, for this podcast, but what book do you recommend for people?
1: Well, I, I'd say, you know, I, I start people on, on a few different books. I would say one of the first starting books to get into would be a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Written Love by Stephen book. Covey, C O V E Y. Very important book to read through very well. And I tell them when you read the books, read it using a highlighting pen. Highlight a, a word, a sentence, or a paragraph that really hits you specifically. What you highlight would be different than what someone else would highlight. Sure. Highlight it. Then when you finish the book, and you're not looking to finish the book in a night or an evening or a week, when you finish the book over the course of maybe even a few weeks or a few months, then go back and read only what you highlighted. That's the process of the reprogramming process. Mm -hmm. Then I'll say, read a book like like Unlimited Power by Anthony Robbins. Mm
3: -hmm. It's
1: a Very good book on just opening up your mind and how you are in control of how your brain thinks. And you can reprogram how your brain thinks, and it can give you a sense of more power and motivation once you understand that reprogramming process. His second book, Awaken the Giant Within, is also a very good book. Mm Covey's book, Principle-Centered Leadership, another book he wrote, very, very good book. Um, Covey's uh, last book he had written before he passed away was called The Eighth Habit, another excellent book to read to understand what The Eighth Habit is. And when you read these books, The Power of Positive Thinking, you know, reading books, you know, any books by Norman Vincent Peale. There's a book called Love by Leo Buscaglia, who passed away several years ago, a great book uh, from Italian immigrant family, who wrote a series of books that were just beautiful books about why why it's important to hug people when you meet them
3: mm-hmm.
1: in, in our Italian tradition. When I go to Europe, I hug everybody and I kiss everybody. like mm-hmm. to America, I go to hug somebody and they're pushing me away. Right, right. I go to kiss somebody and I got a waitress screaming that I'm 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 jumping on them. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 it's incredible. So you, where you are and how you learn and and how you relate to people. It's really uh, interesting to learn. So these are just some books to step into it. There are hundreds more, and it really is important to step into these books and constantly read these books. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I I've read most of the books that you, that you mentioned. I have a whole list of books on the website as well that I that I suggest for people. And a lot of the ones that you mentioned are on there.
1: So. Absolutely. The Power of Now is a great book. Mm-hmm. The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer, a great book. So there are so many great books out there that I tell everybody. Go to, and you can go to your library and get them free. So if someone says I don't have the money, fine. Go to your local library, you can get them free. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, books, I download all of my books now. I, I have them all digitally. I download them on so I can I can read them in, in the course of my travels on any of my devices.
0: I usually get audio books, but the issue is you can't highlight in audiobooks.
1: Well, yeah, and, and you know, and on the digital books, you can highlight, you, you'll right. learn how to highlight. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting process. So it's really exciting that there are ways to make it happen. There are, you know, you know, phenomenal, you know, exciting ways to motivate ourselves. We just have to make the commitment of saying, I want to be at a better place. That's the start.
0: Sure. I agree. And I think that's a, that's a perfect place to, to stop. And, uh, and...
1: Great, man. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you're doing. And I think Drummer's Resource is a great, great avenue to allow many, many drummers the opportunity of being able to voice who they are for current generations and future generations to enjoy. So, I thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. I would love to have you back. So, any any time we can uh arrange to have you back and we can we could talk more drum stuff would be amazing.
1: Bring it on, man. You email me anytime, track me down from wherever I am in my global travels and we'll hook up for sure. That sounds perfect. Thank you so much. Good All luck to right, the rest of the year. Thank you, man. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: There you have it, the great Dom Famularo, always entertaining, so knowledgeable. I could have stayed on that phone call for hours and hours and hours, so I definitely want to hook back up with Dom very soon. If you want to learn more about Dom and check out all of his books, you can check it out at domfamularo.com. Also, all the stuff that we talked about and the resources and links and everything are available at drummersresource.com forward slash Session 69. And if you're interested in checking out the webinar that teaches you how to market yourself as a modern musician to get yourself more exposure, more followers, and more gigs, I teach these webinars 100% free, and you can learn more about it if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash register. And check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, on Instagram at drummersresource, and on Twitter at drummersrsource. Also, I'm coming out with a new series called Ask Rafini. So you can send in your questions, anything to do with drumming, the music business, what my favorite foods are. I don't care what you ask me. Just send me the messages on Twitter and use the hashtag AskRafini, R-U-F-F-I-N-I, and I will be answering them for you, and it's going to go out on YouTube, and then I'll also put it up here on the podcast as well. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.